Settle back, dear friends. Allow the body, allow the mind to relax and open. Allow the space of the mind to expand, grow large and open and empty. Let the mind include all times and the time before time. Open, easy, gentle. Once long ago, in the time before time, the Bodhisattva, the one who would become the Buddha, took birth as a swan into a large flock that lived on the slopes of Mount Chittakuta. Now this was no ordinary bird, for even when very young, when just a signet, their downy feathers shone with a subtle golden hue. The swan's bill was the color of polished onyx and their eyes shone like fine green emeralds. And as the swan grew and fledged into adulthood, they began learning to fly, and over time became the swiftest of all the flock. The swan's feathers took on a rich golden hue, like the light at sunset after a rain, when the sky clears like the color of the aspen leaves in October on the slopes of Nuvatokyovi, where the Katsinas dwell, after an early frost has come. And the great being was known as Javanahamsa, or swift swan. And their swift flight, clear vision, and deep kindness set them apart from the rest of the flock. And over time, very naturally, they became the leader. One day after the flock had eaten of the wild rice that grew in a certain pool on the plains of North India, Javanahamsa, the swift swan, took to the air and passed high over the city of Benares. And it was as though a golden tapestry were spread across the sky from one end of the city to the other. And taking one final turn above the royal palace, the great swan then flew home to the slopes of Mount Chittakuta. And it so happened that on that very day, the king and queen of Benares were outside in the courtyard and they saw the great swan fly overhead. And the king spoke saying, that bird is royal and must be a great leader. And from that time on, the king took a great fancy to the swan, and he gathered garlands and perfumes and all manner of fine things and set off in search of the great being, bringing along musicians and nobles of the court. 
When Javanahamsa saw the king approaching, he turned to the other swans and spoke, saying, When a king does such things, coming forth in this way, with gifts and offerings, what does he want? He wants to make friends with you. It is for reasons of friendship that he has come, said the swans. Well then, let me be friends with the king, for friendship is a great boon to anyone who finds it. And so the great being went out to greet and make friends with the king. Now one day, not long after this, the king and queen, the king and queen went out to seek ease and pleasure in a royal park along the shore of Lake Anatata. And on this occasion, the mighty swan flew to them and with water on one wing and powder of sandalwood on the other, sprinkled them gently with the water and the powder. And then as they looked on, the noble being passed overhead. And again, it was as if the sky were draped in cloth of the finest golden silk. And from that time on, both the king and queen thought often of their friend, each in their own way. The king would sometimes linger by his window, looking out and thinking to himself, perhaps today my comrade will come. Perhaps today I will see my friend. The queen kept the great swan before her in her thoughts with kindness and for wishes for their safety and happiness. And thus she thought also of the flock, for she knew it was not easy to live in the wilds. One day, two of the youngest swans belonging to the flock of Javanahamsa, feeling both strong and full of life, made up their minds to fly a race with the sun. And so they went to their leader telling of their plan, begging leave and permission to fly such a race. Dear ones, the mighty bird said, looking on them fondly, the sun's speed is very swift. You will never be able to race against it. You will only tire yourselves and perish in the attempt. And so I ask you not to go. A second time they asked, and again, the great swan said, do not go. And yet again, a third time. And once again, the bodhisatta withstood their request. But they were fully set upon their plan, for they were young and knew not the limits of their strength. And thus they resolved to race with the sun without permission. And gathering themselves in the early dawn light, they took their places on the top of Mount Yugandara and waited there for the sun. Upon waking, Javanahamsa missed the two young birds and turning to others of the flock, asked where they had gone. After hearing what happened, the swan thought, they will never be able to race with the sun, but will perish in the course. I must try to save them. Javanahamsa flew to the peak of Mount Yugandara and sat down beside the two young birds. And just as the sun crested the shoulder of that great peak, the two young swans rose into the air and darted forward along with the sun. The great being also took to the air and flew alongside. The younger of the two birds flew on until mid-morning, and he then began to grow faint and felt as if a red-hot brand were being stabbed into the joints of his wings. 
And with each wing beat, this feeling grew stronger, calling out to the great swan, to Javanahamsa. He said, I cannot do it. Fear not, said Javanahamsa, I will save you. And taking the young swan on his outspread, on their outspread wings, the great one soothed him and conveyed him back to Mount Chittakuta and there placed him gently down among, among the rest of the swans. The mighty swan then flew off, great wings shining golden as the sun grew higher in the sky. Catching up to the sun, flew alongside the second young swan until near midday, this young swan also grew faint. She felt as though a fire had been kindled in the joints of her wings and was burning there, growing hotter with each wing beat. Making a sign to the great swan, she cried out, I cannot do it. The great being comforted and soothed the second young swan and taking her on outspread wings, bore her safely to the flock on Mount Chittakuta. And at that moment, the sun was overhead shining in all fullness. Javanahamsa thought, today I myself will test the sun's strength and speed. Darting back to the slopes of Mount uh, Nugandara, the great one perched there for a moment and then rising with a great swoop, quickly overtook the sun. Flying now in front, now behind, the swan thought, for me to race with the sun This way is profitless, born of mere folly. Away I will go to Benares, where I can visit and talk Dhamma with my friends, the king and queen. The mighty bird took one last turn around the sun, just for good measure. And before the sun had yet moved from the middle of the sky, traversed the whole world from end to end. Slackening speed, the noble swan traversed the whole of India from end to end. And coming at last to Benares, traversed the whole city at such speed that it was as if the whole region were under a golden shadow without even the smallest gap. And as the mighty bird slowed by degrees, small holes and cracks began to appear within the golden shadow. The great swan slowed even further and coming down from the sky, alighted on the terrace of the palace in front of a window. Our friend has come, cried the king in great joy, for he had been gazing out the window, marveling at the golden shadow. The king sent for the queen and called for a golden seat for the great swan to perch upon. He then spoke, saying, Come, friend, O noble swan, come sit here and rest. You are most welcome here and now. You are master of this place. Mikasa esukasa. All things here are yours. Javanahamsa entered the palace and perched on the golden seat. And the king noticed that one or two feathers were a bit ruffled on the swan's golden body. The king spoke. How do you fare, dear one? Is everything all right? My lord, replied the swan, it has been a rather busy morning. (laughs) Carefully, the mighty bird preened 
their golden feathers. Then the queen came into the room and she spoke not a word, but anointed the great bird upon wings and back with unguents that were 100 times, nay, even 1,000 times refined until the golden feathers glowed like fire. And the great swan raised their golden head to gently caress the queen's hand. The queen then offered the noble one sweet rice and sugared water in a golden dish. And speaking gently, she asked, Good friend, where have you been this morning? And what have you been doing? The great swan then related the tale in full. And the king said, Dear one, cannot you show me your swiftness against the sun? It must be a wondrous thing to behold. O mighty king, that swiftness cannot be shown. Then cannot you show me something like it? For I would dearly love to see such swiftness with my own eyes. Very good, O king. I will show you something like it. Summon your most skilled archers, those who can shoot as swift as lightning. King sent for his best archers, those who had been trained by the world-famous master of Takasila, the same master who had trained Prince Fime's weapons. (laughs) The great swan chose the strongest four of these archers. And then along with the king and queen, they all climbed to the top of the palace, the highest tower there where a stone pillar stood in the center of the platform. The swan then had the king tie a small golden temple bell about their neck. This very bell. (laughs) And taking a seat on top of the golden pillar, placed the four archers, each with their backs to the base of the stone column, facing outward in the four great directions. The mighty swan then said, Oh, great king, Let each of these four men shoot four arrows in the same moment in four different directions. I will catch all these arrows before they touch the ground and lay them at your feet. You will know when I leave by the sound of this bell, but I shall not be seen. Then all in one moment, each of the archers shot four arrows and such was their skill that their movements were just a blur. The king heard the gentlest tinkling of the bell. (laughs) And looking down, saw the arrows neatly piled at his feet. Turning his gaze upward, he saw the great swan perched upon the stone pillar, all of this taking place even before the sound of the bell had finished. Awesome, said the king. (laughs) Nodding his head in amazement. Did you see my speed, O king? asked the swan. The king just kept shaking his head, so great was his wonder. The great swan continued, That speed, O great king, is not my swiftest, nor even my middle speed. It is my slowest of the slowest speeds. My swiftest speed is far greater than that. Then the king asked, Well, friend, is there any speed swifter than yours? There is indeed, O great king, swifter than my swiftest speed, even a hundredfold, even a thousandfold, nay, even one hundred thousandfold, 
is the decay of the elements in living beings, just so they fall away, just so they pass. In this way, the great being made clear how the world of form arises and passes, coming into being, passing away moment by moment. The great one then spoke again, but swifter even than that is the speed of thought. For the elements of the body are heavy and slow in arising and passing. But what is immaterial is light and quick to change. It is as if a person were to look at some far distance upon someone chopping wood with an axe. They would see the movement of the axe ever before the sound of the axe arrived. The sight would arrive first because it is light and quick and the sound would arise later because it is heavy and slow. Upon hearing this, the king fell into a swoon. Unable to keep his senses, he dropped to the floor in a faint. The king went to the king, queen went to the king saying to the swan, the king has always been rather tender and easily overcome. Pray do not fear for him. He will rouse momentarily. Queen gently sprinkled the king's face with rose water and whispered gently in his ear, tenderly brought him around. The great swan spoke, saying, O great king, fear not, but do remember this that which is subject to arising is also subject to passing away. This is the nature of things. Cultivate, O king, the perception of impermanence. This will be for your benefit. Short indeed is the life of beings, limited and brief. This one should wisely understand, for none who is born can escape death. Walk then in heedfulness. Refrain from intentionally causing harm. Do what is good and live with care. And thus shall you purify your mind and heart. Then the king answered saying, My dear friend, without a wise teacher like you, I cannot live happily. I beg you, do not return to Chittakuta, but stay here and instruct me. Be my teacher and my guide. O great swan, dwell here with us. The Bodhisattva then spoke, saying, Ever would I dwell with you, for great is the honor you have thus conferred upon me, and for the sake of friendship too. But perhaps one day after much wine, you might say to your cooks, broil and bake for me that royal bird. (laughs) No, cried the king. (laughs) Then never again shall I touch wine or strong drink, nor even shall I eat while you stay with me. To this, the great one replied, nay, great king, speak not this way. For you must eat, and you must live the life that is yours, and I must do the same. Then the queen spoke. Dear to me, my friend, is the sight of you, and dearer still the sound of your voice. But more dear dear by far is your presence. Still, she continued, I do not ask you to remain, for I know you would not be happy. The ways of people and the ways of birds are different. And you are needed by your flock just as we are needed here. The great swan bowed to the queen and spoke. 
For me, the song of birds and even the cry of jackals is understood with ease. Their ways are clear to me. But the words and ways of humans often leave me puzzled and confused. I would remain your friend and hold you dear in my heart. Were I to stay here, our friendship might become strained. And so I will take my leave and return to my home. And the king spoke. I ask one thing of you then, before you leave this place, come again and do pay a visit here at any time. Welcome you will ever be. The queen only smiled and taking from around her neck a simple chain of gold hung with a single emerald of the purest green, placed it about the neck of the golden bird. And as she did so, the chain seemed to melt into the golden feathers, leaving just the emerald glowing upon the great one's breast. Dear one, she said, take this token of my regard for you and know that you and yours will dwell always in my heart. The golden swan said, O great king and guardian of your folk, for as long as we both shall live, I shall fly here on occasion for friendship's sake. And so we shall see each other as days and nights go by. And certainly I shall come to see the queen, for she is kind and wise and very dear to me. And with this, the great being departed to Mount Chittakutta. There are a number of possible teaching threads one could follow from this story. I think the the teaching on impermanence stands out. And it serves as a reminder to us of of the, uh, the importance that the Buddha placed on opening to this truth. And opening to it, um, sensing into it directly in the unfolding of our moment-to-moment experience. And in many ways, I think we could see the whole path of this practice as uh, unfolding from an ever-deepening understanding of relationship to this truth. The Buddha frequently spoke to the power of this understanding. Fruitful as is the act of giving, yet it is still more fruitful to go with a confident heart for refuge to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, and to undertake the five precepts of virtue. Fruitful as that is, Yet it is still more fruitful to maintain loving kindness in one's being for only as long as the time it takes to milk a cow. And fruitful as that is, yet it is still more fruitful to maintain the perception of impermanence for only as long as the snapping of a finger. Better a single day of life perceiving how things rise and fall than to live for 100 years and yet not perceive their rise and fall. In the texts, the classic description of a moment of awakening is often, usually described 
in terms of the perception of impermanence with these words. The stainless eye of the Dhamma arose thus, that which is subject to arising is subject to passing away. We hear these kinds of words, all things are impermanent. So often in places like this, there's a chance that that these words start to lose uh, the power of their meaning, becomes sort of an idea that we hold, a kind of philosophical stance we adopt, or, or just something to say when you hang around places like IMS. true. (laughs) We can approach meditation as a process of training. Look at it as a training. What we train is this uh, quality of mindfulness. We train ourselves in that We train this capacity to be aware. We plant the seeds for this to arise. Train this relationship to life. And over time, we begin to trust this awareness more than the passing show of changing phenomena. And through this process, this process of training, we begin to drop below the surface and touch into deeper kinds of realities. We begin to see the way things really are below our everyday eye. And at moments, at least, our focus begins to shift towards, to open into uh, what are more Uh, universal, timeless qualities of all phenomena. we, We start to really touch deeply into this truth that whatever has the nature to arise does indeed have the nature to pass away, to cease. And the ways we touch into this happen on different levels, sometimes very obvious. Just over the course of the weeks that we've been here on this retreat, the changes of the seasons, the days growing shorter, leaves falling as autumn turns towards winter. We see the way that our bodies change over time, over the years this inevitable movement of anything that is of the nature to take birth towards decay, aging, and eventually death. In more, uh, you could say, more momentary experience, we turn and tune to change in terms of the shifting sensations in the body when we sit in meditation. 
this dance of the elements arising, falling away. One sensation, hardness, coolness, warmth, pressure, tension, vibration, rising, passing over and over. There's nothing that's stable or stays permanent in that flow. Sometimes the form of the body may seem to fall away. The edges and boundaries and shape aren't there in the way that it is if we look in the mirror, our usual way of looking at things. Body is just this flow of changing sensations. And sometimes they do arise faster than we can track, much as the way the great swan described it. Maybe we notice the incredible, insubstantial, fleeting nature of mental activity, of thoughts and images, these pulses of mental energy, mental energy that arise and pass. See how whole worlds are created in the mind. We may become lost in them, lost in the story. When it falls away, this universe that comes into being disappears. Where did it go? We see over and over that mind and body, the whole of what we call our life, our experience, who and what we are, is in this state of constant flux. We see it over and over, but we get lost in the process and in the details of it so often. The world of the sense context of sights and sounds, moods and sensations, and all we think and feel about what's going on there. Get lost in all that it seems to be saying or meaning about me, about who I am. We get so fascinated with it. We fall into a kind of fascination and, and we lose sight of its changing nature. Somehow through this, we, we tend to attribute a solidity or reality or substantiality to it all that it doesn't really have. Andre and I had a, a beautiful um, illustration of this in nature one time. It's a story I've told before, but it's such a beautiful one for me. We were, uh, I think we were teaching a month-long retreat in California at Spirit Rock, and we had a, a bit of, of a break, and we went to the beach, and it was very stormy and windy. And the waves were pounding and pounding and churning up the sea foam, Huge quantities of sea foam building up on the shore, and and it was, and the wind was blowing parallel to the to the shoreline, and these great chunks of 
of the seafoam, you know, as big as a couch, some of them, or a chair, huge chunks would come barreling down towards us along the shore. And then they would just evaporate. They looked like icebergs (laughs) coming at us. And then they just go away and there's nothing there. They seemed like so solid. The world of our experience has this sense. It seems so solid and real, but then we see it's just gone and there was never really anything there of any substance. There seem to be a lot of issues to consider, to deal with. There's so many likes and dislikes, and reactivity and wantings and not wantings and things we find acceptable and so much that we find unacceptable. And there must be something we have to do about it all. On more than one occasion uh, during this retreat, one or another of us has has made reference to, uh, we've all often referred to the Satipatthana Sutta in this discourse that is our, our meditation instructions, our main source for that. And, and this refrain that is repeated throughout that teaching that ends all of this, the different sections within the this teaching on the establishment of mindfulness. And it, it's a, a refrain that kind of summarizes uh, how we approach all the various instructions on mindfulness directed to the body, to feelings, to the mind, to patterns of experience, you could say. I'm going to read it to you again. One abides contemplating body, feelings, mind, dhammas, internally or externally, or both internally and externally. Or one abides contemplating body, feelings, mind, dhammas in their nature of arising or their nature of passing away, or both their nature of arising and passing away or mindfulness that there is a body, that there are feelings, that there is mind, that there are dhammas, is established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. So these ways that we contemplate all of these different experiences, we contemplate uh, nature, you could say, within our own mind and body and externally in the world around us in both ways, both of those ways. And, And in this instruction to contemplate all of this in terms of its arising, its passing, both its arising and passing. And then at the end, the last sentence in this refrain, 
there's this sense of uh, this quality of independence. In my in my mind, the feeling of this is this quality of freedom there, spoken about as this independent abiding, free of clinging to anything, non-clinging to anything, whatever. So this, this sense of an independent abiding there. What, what might the Buddha be, be pointing to? It's, it's not a state of, of disconnection or some kind of independence where we're separated from life or, or a kind of disconnection or numbness where we don't feel anything or some way of living where we're divorced from life or experience. I see this sense of an independent abiding as pointing to the possibility of a life lived where our well-being, happiness, is independent of the changing conditions of the world, where one lives in the world fully, even joyfully, but no longer asks the world of changing conditions to provide that which it is incapable of ever providing, a source of lasting contentment or peace. When I first read this teaching and heard heard these words, this abiding independently, not clinging to anything, I, I saw it as a as kind of this tag end of a, this description of the end of the path, perhaps the description, uh, kind of a, a way of describing the enlightened mind, and perhaps there's some some truth to this in a way. Maybe something one might aspire to. But I think we can relate to it as an actual instruction, something that we can practice uh, right now, right in the moment. To actually practice abiding independently without clinging. We suggested this possibility before. Different different ways we can turn the mind in in our meditation can uh, point us towards this possibility. These are some words from Upasaka Ki Nanayana, Thai, uh, lay Thai woman who's a very uh, beloved teacher, highly realized teacher. And so turning and tuning towards the truth of change in her words here. If you look into the rippling current of your experience, you'll find that there's actually nothing you can latch onto as having any essence. Everything disbands and disappears. New fabrications arise and pass away, arise and pass away. 
They keep, they keep flowing on and they seem to involve many issues. But actually there aren't many issues. There's only arising, remaining and passing away. It's because we're so focused on not seeing this that there seem to be so many issues. But no matter how many there are, there's really only just this, arising, remaining, passing away. It's like a rippling current of water where the rippling isn't a thing at all. And so we, we see how we do get caught up in the details of experience and the contents. And, and we fail to notice that it's just this flow of change. So we wind up latching onto it, some aspect of it. So there leading to this feeling then that there's lots of issues there. There's so much we we must need to deal with and try to fix, control somehow. But we can take a a half a step back. It's like we are sitting by a stream and we let our eyes soften, relax into the flow of the stream. We might find we can look simply at the present moment as it arises and passes and let it be. And we may taste this possibility of an independent abiding there. A little more from Upasakaki Nanayon. If you learn to see skillfully in this way, you'll see that all things arise, remain and pass away. The past has passed away. The future hasn't yet come. Look simply at the present arising and passing away right before your eyes and don't hold on. When you see arising, remaining and passing away pure and simple right in the present moment and then let go, that's when you gain release. Another way we might kind of incline the mind toward this sense of an independent abiding is by resting our attention within the quality of awareness itself, at least in moments. One time I was here on retreat sitting in this hall when uh, Venerable Sayadaw Utejaniya was here teaching and he would sit up front with us in the morning time and uh, just little reflections would sometimes arise. And one time uh, he said something like this, awareness is your true home, stay home where you belong. And in my experience at the time, sitting in meditation, for me it was this sense that I didn't have to lean into or reach out and pick anything up. I didn't have to pick it up in any way. There's a sense, oh, I'll just stay here. I don't need to pick any of this up. So 
So there can be this relaxing back, this uh, staying home where we belong. <laughs> can remove a lot of the this compulsion we so often feel to get involved or latch on to things or try to control the experience. And, and we may dis- discover in that moment that there are times when nothing is clung to. We see that the experience is just this flow of contacts and knowing, contacts and knowing. It's just nature, it's just this process of nature unfolding, doing its thing. And we can settle back and let it do its thing. It's like letting the stream flow. We don't have to try to grab onto it. We can't grab onto it anyway. We don't have to claim ownership of it. We may find this sense of an independent abiding right then. Another, I guess it's a kind of practice that may uh, help us sense into this, this sense, this feeling of independence. It's not a disconnection. It's a, an intimate but independent relationship with experiences is a kind of shifting from doing to being. So often our sincere efforts in meditation lead us in the direction of trying to make something happen. We find that we're leaning on experience, leaning on the moment, trying to get something out of it or trying to go somewhere or have an insight. But if we take a period of time and let go of all practices, all doings, drop all agendas, just become a human being instead of a human doing. We may find a taste of of this kind of independence. It can be really interesting. Let's do it here for just a few moments to look at the difference between not doing anything and what we call meditating. Just sit quietly for a moment and don't do anything. Nothing to do, nowhere to go, no one to be, nothing to get, nothing to get rid of, nothing to hold on to, nothing to let go of. 
no meditation, no one who's trying to meditate. This taste of this possibility of resting independently. There's no fighting against or struggling with the way it is. Give everything back to nature, let it flow on, nothing stops. Everything keeps arising and passing. nothing we have to do about any of it. We settle into a kind of resting in non-struggle, non-agitation. And our practice over time, this state of non-struggle, of non-agitation, begins to flower forth as a deepening uh, experience of balance, of equanimity in the mind. Deep balance that's open, connected, sensitive, responsive, totally responsive, deeply connected and intimate with all things. It's based on this radical intimacy with all of life and totally present with experience, but not pushed or pulled around by it. Fully present and free. And this deep balance of mind, this quality of equanimity, strengthens as an enlightenment factor. This has been spoken about. And at times we touch into this deep balance of mind, and sometimes called high equanimity. Sometimes called six-limbed equanimity because it arises in relation to all six of the sense spaces. It's said to be uh, similar to the mind of an arahant, of an enlightened being. That's unshakable, unassailable balance of mind in the face of any experience. Nothing moves that. And we start to get a, a sense of or a taste of a, a kind of stillness, a profound stillness beneath all of the movement, the dance of life, and all of the motion there, a stillness that was not in any way disconnected or denying anything, not separated from life, 
really born of a deep intimacy, as I've been saying. But it's an intimacy that does not demand or require any kind of clinging or identification. It's like the stillness of the ocean beneath the waves. That stillness is always there. It's there right now. It's here in this room. And it's closer to us than even the inside of our eyelids. I'll end end this evening with some words from T.S. Eliot. This is from Bernd Norton in The Four Quartets. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point, there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement. And do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline. Except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. I can only say there we have been, but I cannot say where, and I cannot say how long, for that is to place it in time. The inner freedom from the practical desire, the release from action and suffering, release from the inner and the outer compulsion, yet surrounded by a grace of sense, a light still and moving. Thank you for joining me this evening.
May there be all blessings for you. May the devas protect you. May you always live in safety and ease. And may you return for chanting at nine (laughs) o'clock if you have the energy. (laughs) 